0: Merry Christmas, family. Wow. That, the singing was unbelievable. Um, I know it's said from this pulpit often. Uh, This is one of those churches that sings with everything they got. And uh, I had to stop for a moment and just take in the praises of our Lord from the voices of his saints. Uh, Tear it up a little bit as we consider Christ this morning and what he has come and what he has done for us. And I pray that he is our vision this morning as we focus on him. I invite you to turn with me to the New Testament book of First Timothy, chapter 1. First Timothy, chapter 1. If you are using a pew Bible, that could be found on page 1,262. 1,262 and I would encourage you if you would like leave a bookmark in Acts chapter 7 verse 54 which is found on page 1,165 on your preview bible because we are going to be going back and forth between Acts and First Timothy this morning again Acts 7 verse 54 on page 1,165 and 1 Timothy 1 on page 1,262. And again, our teaching text is found in verses 15 through 17 of 1 Timothy. For context, we're going to read verses 1 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. For the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. invisible the only god be honor and glory forever and ever amen the year was 1847 sir james simpson a scottish surgeon from edinburgh made a discovery through the course of experimentation he found that chloroform worked as an anesthetic for his patients and his patients could enter surgery without the fear of dealing with the pain and suffering that would come during an operation. Many stated that Dr. Simpson's discovery was a key breakthrough in modern medicine. Many years later, later in his life, Dr. Simpson was giving a lecture at the University of Edinburgh. A student asked him what he considered to be the greatest discovery of his life the students anticipated his response to point to the medical use of chloroform. Instead, Dr. James Simpson replied, "'My most valuable discovery was when I discovered myself a sinner and that Jesus Christ was my Savior.'" And you may have heard the story of Dr. Simpson. It is one that was shared many times in the articles and texts that I came across during my research for today's sermon. And it mirrors so well with Paul's testimony that we just read in his first letter to his young protege in the ministry, Timothy. Paul, an opponent of God in his early years, received salvation from God, an act of mercy and grace on the part of Jesus Christ, his Savior. You see, the apostle Paul and Sir James Simpson realized that they were great sinners in need of a great Savior. Though the entirety of Paul's first letter to Timothy is one of great concern for the church in Ephesus, one of great concern for its pasture, one of great concern for the purity of the gospel, the underlying tone of Paul's letter is one of comfort. Just look at the wording that he uses in verses 1 through 2 and in verse 5. He says that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope to Timothy, my true child, in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And then in verse 5, he says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience. It is sincere faith. Timothy, God is our Savior. Christ Jesus is our hope, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, peace, love, a pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. Even amid dealing with his concerns, the Apostle Paul never loses sight of his encouragement to Timothy. And with that tone in mind, we're going to look at three points from the teaching text before us. The first being Christ's purpose, which is found in verse 15. The second being Christ's promise, found in verse 16. And the third being Christ's praise, found in verse 17. First, let us look at Christ's purpose in verse 15. The Apostle Paul says the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. As we stated earlier, Timothy is a pastor in Ephesus at the time that Paul writes this letter. And Paul wanted Timothy to stay and to handle the doctrinal issues that the church was facing. Namely, Paul wanted to be sure that the true gospel was being proclaimed. And we know that this is true because of what we read in verses 3 through 7. He immediately addresses the false doctrine that Ephesus was facing. And so Paul immediately brings Timothy back to the centrality of the gospel message in verse 15. And by way of implication, he is pointing you and I Back to the centrality of the gospel. He wastes no time describing for us the purpose for which Christ came to save sinners. And Paul does so by pointing to his own life and the change that was made by the power of the Holy Spirit. In writing on this verse, one commentator states that verse 15 is the gospel in miniature. And to help us understand this verse, let's take verse 15 and let's work it backward, if you will. At the very end, he says that he is the foremost sinner. Do you see it? What does Paul mean when he refers to himself as the foremost sinner? He's alluding to verses 12 through 13 where he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, Because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and insolent opponent, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Was he really that bad, Rich? Yes. You see, he was not always Paul, he went by his Hebrew name, Saul prior to Christ bringing him unto salvation. And we are first introduced to Saul in Acts chapter 7 and verse 54. At this point of church history, Stephen, a deacon in the church, just preached a message that struck at the pride of the religious elite of his day. And in Acts chapter 7 verse 54 through chapter 8 verse 3, God states this, Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him, Stephen. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul was ravaging the church. The word used for ravaging means to treat shamefully or with injury, to devastate, to ruin. Saul preyed on the followers of Jesus Christ. And I can only imagine A family sitting at a dinner table and a man full of rage busting into a home, beating on the husband, grabbing the wife by the hair and dragging her down, and then taking the parents from the home while the kids sat and wept and cried for mercy. Paul did that house after house after house after house. Why? Because they were Christians. Their crime was they had faith in Jesus. In Acts chapter 9, in verses 1 through 2, we read, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, as Christians were called, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Make no mistake, church, Saul was a violent man. As A.T. Robertson explained, quote, Threatening and slaughter had come to be the very breath that Saul breathed, like a war horse who sniffed the smell of battle, end quote. Saul, who later later became Paul, declared himself the foremost sinner for a reason. And if you're sitting there without Christ as your Savior, I ask that you heed the warning from God's word. Romans chapter 3, verses 22 through 23, we see that there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death and the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And you may be thinking, you know, Rich, I'm a pretty good person. I treat my spouse well. I love my kids well. I love my grandkids well. I'm in church every weekend. I listen patiently under long-winded preachers every Sunday. Surely God will outweigh my good with my bad when I die. Listen to the words of Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 27. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock, and the rain fell when the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell when the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Do you hear what Jesus is declaring to you, unbeliever? It is not your good works. It's not your religious acts or even the fact that you, you sit here every Sunday listening to Pastor Darren or other men preach from the word of God. He's not impressed by your religious acts. You cannot pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and make yourself right before the mighty God. It is your submission to and obedience to his command to repent, to turn away from your sin, So that when the reign of God's judgment comes on the day when you stand face to face with him, your life will be built upon the solid foundation of Christ's suffering work on the cross for you. That's what you're going to have to answer to. To reject Jesus as your savior is to sentence yourself to hell. This is a truth you must not overlook. In describing the parable of the wheat and the weeds, Jesus shared its meaning toward the end of Matthew chapter 13. Jesus' disciples wanted to know what the parable meant, the wheat being Christians and the weeds being unbelievers. Jesus states this in Matthew chapter 13, verses 40 through 42. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, So will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out the kingdom, all causes of sin and lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew chapter 22, verse 13. We see that the unbelieving will be cast out into utter darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Revelation chapter 20, verses 14 through 15. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Unfortunately, church, this is the reality for many. Do you feel the weight of the truth of what it means to reject the Lord Jesus Christ? Unbelieving friend, hear me. There is hope. You may think that you are too far gone to be saved. That God is so disgusted with you that he has placed he has no place for, for you within his family and what Paul is saying in verse 15 of 1 Timothy 1 is are you serious I had blood on my hands and I had been washed clean because the purpose of Christ was to save sinners from the manger to the cross The work of the Lord Jesus Christ was always God's plan for salvation. There is no sin too great that the spilled blood of Christ can't cover. He came to save sinners. He came to save the unholy. He came to save the lawless. He came to save the disobedient. He came to save the ungodly. He came to save the unholy. He came to save the profane. He came to save the murderer. He came to save the one addicted to pornography. He came to save the adulterer. He came to save the liar. He came to save the blasphemer. He came to save the persecutor. He came to save you. And he came to save me. How do we know this to be true? Because it is a message that can be trusted. And Paul establishes a contrast to the false gospel that he just warned us about in the previous verses of 1 Timothy 1. Unlike the false gospels that cannot be trusted and fail the church, Paul points to the one true gospel that is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And if you're sitting there and you are a believer in Christ, this should give you great encouragement. If we were to take this text and translate it literally, it would read this. This statement is faithful, fully reliable, worthy of all manner of acceptance. This is a message that you can give your whole life to. The Lord Jesus Christ came to save. And those whom he saves, he never abandons. You are his forever. God states in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Romans 8, 38 through 39, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Permanent. In writing 1 Timothy 1 in writing on 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, the great reformer John Calvin states, quote, "Wherefore, whenever any doubt shall arise in our mind about the forgiveness of sins, let us learn to repel it courageously with this shield that it is an undoubted truth and deserves to be received without controversy." End quote. Our salvation is sure." Paul wastes no time in verse 15 to remind Timothy and us of the faithful, fully reliable good news that the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world as a babe. Not so that we can sing great hymns and that great songs could be written. Not so we would receive gifts on Christmas morning, although those things are nice. He came humbly, taking on human flesh, that he may die in your place and bear the full wrath of God for your sin. Wrath that you deserved. Well, we not only see Christ's purpose in verse 15, we also see, secondly, Christ's promise in verse 16. And in verse 16, we see, But I received mercy for this reason, That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul was showing Timothy that his life is an example that the Lord Jesus Christ promises to bring salvation to all who believe in him and submit to Christ, even the worst of sinners. In essence, Paul is saying, if Jesus can save me he can save anyone one commentator speaking on the patience of god mentioned in verse 16 states this quote but no matter how deep the sin our lord is able to penetrate deeper with his love and his forgiveness god's patience is unlimited literally it has no limit it never runs out never becomes exhausted it is as eternal as he is, end quote. God's patience is as eternal as he is. One great example of the patience of God is shown in the days of Noah. God gave the people of Noah's day 120 years to repent of their wickedness before the flood waters rose. For 120 years, Noah would build the ark and preach repentance. And God, through it all, was patient. Though the wickedness of man was great, God's patience gave great opportunities for repentance. So what's this mean for us? Friend, if you have breath, if you are sitting there breathing. It is a gift of God to you. It is a gift of God that you hear the gospel message. It is a gift of grace and of mercy that he has appointed you to sit in these pews this very morning to hear the declaration of the gospel. It is an example of his patience with you there is still time to turn from your sin and to turn to Christ. And look at the end of verse 16. What will he give you? Eternal life. Everlasting life with him in heaven. The gift of life is a promise from God to those who believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and as their Savior. He is patient with you. Well, not only do we see Christ's purpose and promise, we also see, thirdly, Christ's praise in verse 17, where Paul pins to the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul pins this doxology, this expression of praise to God for the salvation that he has in the Lord Jesus Christ. It reads as if he could not contain his joy and his thankfulness that he had toward God. Christian, have you ever found yourself in those moments? A circumstance in your life occurs and you cannot help but stop and to give God praise? Or you're sitting with a cup of coffee reading the Bible, and God's mercy and grace toward you overwhelms your heart to the point where you cannot help but stop and give God glory. Paul was remembering this. Paul's remembering how foolish he was, how ignorant he was to oppose the Lord Jesus Christ and to oppose those of the way, these Christians. He was remembering his murderous rampage and the numerous lives that were left devastated in his wake and as paul was penning his testimony to timothy and declaring what christ has done i wonder if in the breath between verses 16 to 17 he relives the day he was called into the family of god on his way to damascus We read earlier about how he received letters from the high priest to seize people belonging to the way, belonging to Christ. But God had a different agenda. Look with me at Acts chapter 9, verses 3 through 22. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. and he has seen a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has come from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Just stop for a second. Imagine how murderous Paul's, Saul's rampage was that before the days of social media, he was known throughout the land for his murderous rampage and hatred toward Christians. That's quite a reputation to spread that fast without the technology that we have today. Let's pick it up in verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go. Go. Something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose? to bring them bound before the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Saul went to persecute Christ. And within a few days, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was preaching Christ. Many scholars believe that Paul's conversion took place within three years of Jesus being crucified, buried, and raised to life. 1 Timothy was written around 62 to 64 AD, some 60 years later. And even after all those years, the joy of his salvation still overwhelmed his heart to the point of praise. I can envision Paul reliving these moments that we just read about and then penning His praise to God in verse 17 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. Christian, wouldn't you like to have that kind of attitude to be a mark in your life? To be so captivated by Christ after years of following your Savior that you cannot help but rejoice and give him praise for what he has done for you on the cross. It is my prayer that we all have those types of hearts. Hearts of gratefulness to Christ that produces that kind of praise to the Lord Jesus. I pray that that would be a constant thread woven throughout the history of your life and of mine. Paul, in his old age, gives us a beautiful example of the praise we should be giving to God. Paul simply declares who God is. He's the king of ages. The term that Paul was using when he says the king of ages, he's literally saying he is the eternal king. The king whose reign shall never end. He is the immortal. He is not liable to corruption. He is perfect. He is holy. He is invisible. He is unseen. He is the only God. There are no other gods before him. There is only one true God. And because of who he is, we should be giving him honor and glory forever and ever. A beautiful and humble cry of praise from the pen of one undeserving sinner. May I ask you, where do you stand? with Jesus. I'm not here to give a fancy speech. I'm not here so we could check a box on a Sunday. This is the truth. It's a matter of life and death. Do you believe that the babe that laid in a feed trough was the promised Messiah? the Savior of the world? For the babe crying in the manger was born for one reason, to die on a criminal's cross, to save you from the destruction of your sin that was leading you to hell. His purpose was to redeem you to your Creator. his promise is that he will save those who come to him and when you do you cannot help but give him praise for what he has done for you his awesome work of salvation I'll leave you with a quote from the Prince of Preachers Charles Spurgeon quote Jesus Christ did not come into the world to help you to forget your sin He has not come to furnish you with a cloak with which to cover it. He has not appeared that he may so strengthen your minds that you may learn to laugh at your iniquities and defy the consequences thereof. For no such reason has the Son of God descended from heaven to earth. He has come not to lull you into a false peace, not to whisper consolation, which would turn out to be delusive in the end, but to give you a real deliverance from sin by putting it away and so to bring you to a true peace in which you may safely rejoice. End quote. Where do you stand? Do not leave here without knowing the answer to that question. Let us pray.